great to be together here talking about means of grace yet again. And I love the topic. I hope you do too. The reason this topic is so important is it is our firewall against mysticism. It's a firewall against abuse by religious leaders who would put us under bondage. And it's our promise, it's how God fulfills his promise that he'll sanctify his own people. And you want to keep in mind Galatians, as I've been preaching through that, and we've been doing it on the radio, that as we begin in the spirit, we're not perfected by the flesh. So what God has done is provided means ordained by God, commanded by God, attached with promises from God, that he says that we can come to him and grow in him. And as we saw last week, this promise is accessible to all. He doesn't put something out there that only some spiritual elite can possibly do. This is for anybody and everybody, and it's an equalizer in regard to the body of Christ. At this juncture of my theological life, my primary concern is protecting the flock and feeding the flock. This isn't about religious leaders, and this isn't about glory or money or you know, having a name out there or any of that. It's about how the Lord takes care of his precious flock. And we have to remember that God's flock was purchased by the blood. They're precious to him. And they're not here to do the bidding of religious leaders who think they have some better idea than everybody else has ever had. These things are provided by God for us. But let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather because you've been so gracious as to make us a part of your family. We pray that you open our hearts and minds to understand the scriptures that are set before us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Last week we had that chart. Remember, the? some of you still have that, that green sheet of paper. I don't know if I had any extra ones. I thought I did. Must have pulled them out of here. But we're going to go on now. Now, that chart laid out some of the key things that make means of grace what they are. And there was the command of God, the promise of God, and then the idea of accessibility. And accessibility is really the key idea because that's what makes... God's provision available to every Christian without distinction. Today we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. And to show you that the Lord is concerned about accessibility, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, wait for one another. This is not a private meal. This is to be accessible to every Christian without distinction. Now, what we want to do this morning is distinguish between means of grace and the result of grace or the intention of grace that God is using and working into our lives. Now, the general heading of what God is doing through these means of grace that we saw here is to bring us to holiness. Now, holiness needs to be understood as what we already are, saints, or holy ones, and what God has called us to be progressively, which is holy in all of our behavior. And that term shows up here in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. Today, we'll study this passage, and then I have a special treat for you. Luther. And boy, does he wax eloquent on this topic. 
there is not a week that goes by that I don't study Luther. And uh, in the middle of January on our CICMinistry.org broadcast, there are two podcasts where we rebuke the Lutheran understanding of baptism. Because I was challenged to do that, lest people think that I'm just Luther follower without discretion. And we're disagreeing with infant baptism. So having done that now, I feel even more at liberty to promote what I like about Luther. And because it's amazing the insights that he shows about the scripture. And he obviously spent a whole lifetime studying it. Okay, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. This citation there in verse 16 comes generally from Leviticus. It's repeated many times in Leviticus, but I would point you more, most directly to Leviticus 19.2. If you want to quote that, and when we get to that, I want to talk about Leviticus and what it was like for the people to whom Leviticus was first given. So here is a command, but not really, it's a moral command, but it's not a means of grace. And when people get this confused, what they do is they take all the commands in Scripture and just use those, do this, 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 do that. And you better do it or there's something wrong with you. Without providing the, the concept of means of grace, so it becomes hopeless. And people just throw up their hands and say, I'll never be holy, it's hopeless for me. Either that or they make a more limited list that's more doable, and then they just call themselves holy. I've been spending a lot of time studying this. Now, if you look at our categories from last week, which are here, if you have that green sheet, I know the font is too small. There must be a command from God. Well, we have that. Be holy. That's definitely a command from God. There must be a promise from God. Well, I would say that there is. There are promises connected to holiness. God's a holy God. It's even a promise that ultimately we will be holy. We know from um, Romans 8, God is working all things, you know, for our good, that we'd ultimately be conformed to the image of Christ. So there's a promise. But what we don't have here is accessibility. We can't just go out and do this. All right? Unless we're totally deluded. But I'll tell you some approaches where you could do it, but in the end, that fails. I'll explain my own background, how I was born again in um, churches and movements that were involved with the holiness movement and how it was handled there. Now, one of the things we see here that's important is that ethics in the New Covenant and ethics in general for Christian ethics are grounded in the nature of God. I want, I want you to think about that. By the way, where are you going? <laughs> okay. Oh, I see. Eric is sneaking out. <laughs> okay. I wanted his insights. Okay. We don't believe in guilt around here. You stay put right here. Ethics, If you, I don't know how, if any of you have studied Christian ethics. I studied that at Bethel Seminary under a good teacher, Dr. Rakestraw, who specialized that. And back in those days, used to be interviewed on on local TV news when there would be an ethical issue that would come up, uh, usually caused by technology, like when do you pull the tube or pull the plug on life support? They'd interview him, and. There are two approaches to ethics, and the one that's valid biblically is that ethics or right behavior is grounded in the nature of God. The two basic categories for ethics are ethics grounded in the nature of God or decretive. In other words, God, in the other approach, God would be 
dissociated himself from the holiness and just said, do this, do this, do this, decretively, without kind of a detached way from God himself. But we're saying, and I have here a quote from Dr. Schreiner, one of the people who was at Bethel when I was there, the pattern for holiness is God himself. Be ye holy because I am holy. God is a holy God. Now, the citation here is from Leviticus. Now, in Leviticus, you have a consistent theme about holiness. And what's stated in Leviticus is that God is holy. So the law, the rules, the ceremonial regulations, the laws about clean and unclean, everything that was going on in the camp of Israel was grounded in the fact that God as a holy God was in their midst. And they were continually defiled, both morally and ceremonially. It was impossible for any Israelite to go through life without being unclean over and over again. Normal life made them unclean, and they had to go through various regulations to get clean. But then they're all on top of that was the moral law of God. Clean and unclean doesn't necessarily mean sinful or not sinful. It had to do with ordinary life. So the idea of holiness is grounded in the nature of God. So here's the sinful people with the holy God dwelling in their midst in the holy place. And then they had the Day of Atonement and so on, but it had to be redone every single year. So they never actually achieved lasting holiness. In fact, it was impossible. And that's the theme of the book of Hebrews. It could never make them clean. Or else, says the, the author of Hebrews, it wouldn't have to repeat, be repeated over and over again. And we'll look at Hebrews if we get that far. And so what we have under the new covenant is what William Lane in his commentary in Hebrews calls decisive purgation. No longer does ordinary life make us unfit to be God's people. We're cleansed from the inside out. Even our conscience is cleansed. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14, our, the blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So we can be a holy people. We can have decisive purgation. We are cleansed. But yet, ethically, we're not. We fail, we fall short, and the goal always is out there that our lives would be conformed to the holiness that God calls us to. And here it says, in your behavior, in your behavior. The term for behavior here has a different prefix to the root of which we find quite often in Acts and sometimes in Galatians for repentance, to turn, strafo. Here it says, um, I believe, out of strafo, and it has to do with being right or upright in regard to our behavior. And that's something we're called to be by God. So we have a command from God, and I believe we have a promise from God, but accessibility is a difficulty. And here's the question. What are we going to do about accessibility? Am I to compare myself with other Christians and decide that I'm better and I'm more holy than they are? That's a, really a fool's mission because there are things about us known only to God because we need to realize that when it comes to holiness, this includes matters of the heart. It includes everything. And we have moral commands in the New Testament that we ought to and want to obey. And then when you think about something like the heart being desperately wicked, who can know it? Only I, the Lord, know the heart. Then we realize 
that we'd be a fool to say, my heart is clean because I know I did everything God wanted me to do. So we're all the time relying on positional holiness, the cleansing, the cleansing of conscience, while we are growing in regard to the keeping of the moral law of God. I told you I'd tell a little bit about my story. I was hostile to the gospel, hostile to Christians, mainly because Diane had become one, and it really bugged me that these Jesus freaks were messing with my fiancé. Okay? And the idea of marrying a Jesus freak was just loathsome. We were already engaged. But the Lord saw fit to, co- to confront me in my sin and my wickedness and convert me. Now, Diane and her family and me were baptized in a church that since the 1930s had been a Pentecostal holiness church. But a year earlier, a new pastor came from North Central Bible College who turned a church to an Assemblies of God church. What's the difference? Well, Pentecostalism is grounded in the holiness movement. And around the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, the holiness movement was concerned with achieving perfection. And there were very various perfectionist doctrines, including Keswick holiness and various kinds of Wesleyan and Church of the Nazarene and Pentecostal holiness. At that point, their second blessing, which was an extraordinary secondary work of grace beyond conversion, was that they achieved perfection and holiness. A famous person you've probably heard of who believed that was Oswald Chambers. I was recently given a copy of his biography, and he claimed to have achieved total perfection through an experience called total surrender. And so if you read My Atmos for His Highest, it's written from that perspective of total surrender, meaning perfection in a Wesleyan sense. Now, I was born again as Diane and her dad and mom and brother in this church that had right up to a year earlier was a Pentecostal holiness church. The pastor, now Assemblies of God, and they changed the name to Parkview Assembly, told me that they had not baptized a single convert in 40 years. They were so eccentric and so cloistered they had nobody in town would have anything to do with them. Diane grew up right across from the park from that church, and her parents had warned her not even to walk over there. It was so weird. That's what they thought. Now, whether as at the point where I came in, I didn't feel that way. And when I went to join the church, they gave me the list of rules. And they told me, this is a holiness church. Here's the rules. And you had to sign and agree to it to join the church. The rules included no dancing, no playing cards, no going to movies, no smoking, no drinking, no association with any form of worldly entertainment, whatever that might be. You had to agree to that. So I did. And it was interesting to me because about that time, the Ten Commandments was being shown in the, in the downtown theater. And I thought, man, I would love to see that in color, because we only had black and white TV, <laughs> on a big screen. But I thought, I don't want to bring shame to the church I just joined. So I asked the pastor if I could go to the Ten Commandments. And he said, no, I cannot. Somebody might see me going into that theater. And then that would compromise the idea of holiness. But as I got into the church, and I was as messed up as anybody, but God was very gracious. All of the things that any church would have to deal with were resident there. And not that I was one lick better than anybody. Pride, selfishness, bitterness, unforgiveness. See, these things that are of the heart are not amenable to do not dance and do not play cards. Now, I was plenty glad to not dance because I didn't like to do it anyhow, and it got me a good excuse. (laughs) No, I'm not going to dance. I'm holy. 
No, I actually, I'm not going to dance. I'm clumsy. <laughs> but that's okay. I'm not saying whether you ought or, or ought not to dance. But so from there, I went to North Central Bible College, which was very similar. But one of the things I noticed when I got there, and I was willing to sign the paper and not go to the movies and, and everything on there. One of the things I noticed was that the kids that grew up in that denomination, they were savvy and cynical, which I thought, well, they had the gospel. Nobody else did. I'm glad to be here. I won't, I don't care what their rules are. The students just laughed at it. The insiders went to whatever movie they wanted to do. They just ignored the whole thing, did whatever they wanted because they, they were just cynical about it. And I, as a new Christian, just my conscience wouldn't let me do that. Now, here's the issue. This that's approach is extremely inadequate in regard to what God is actually calling us to. Because it may deceive us. Now, this Oswald Chambers, the, the Pentecostal holiness, the Church of the Nazarene, the holiness denominations, which most evangelical denominations have roots in that. Christian Missionary Alliance with A.B. Simpson. You go back and they all have roots in that. And they all had their rules and laws that they had so we'd know we're holy. Because all of those were keepable if you wanted to actually do so. Now, the problem with that is that it's absolutely no power in such an approach against fleshly indulgence. According to Colossians 2, these things have the appearance of wisdom. Let's turn to that, Colossians 2, I think, verse 20. According to Colossians, these man-made ideas came from the demons. And you might think, why would the demons want us to follow rules? Why would the demons care about that? The stoichia which would be found in Colossians 2.8, according to the elemental spirits. And in Colossians 2.20, also mentioning the stoichia, if you died with the Messiah to the elemental forces of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? All... These regulations refer to what is destroyed by being used up. They are commands and doctrines of men. So they have two sources, the stoichia and the men influenced by the stoichia. Although they had the reputation of wisdom by promoting aesthetic practices, what's asceticism? Does anybody know? It's, yes, uh, Mike, could you get that mic? Eric was going to do it, but he disappeared on us. I believe asceticism is like denying yourself, uh, living a life that uh, is uh, minimalistic and denying yourself. Yeah, very well said, minimalistic. It would be the monastic approach where you have very few of the, not, not only do you not have the pleasures, but you don't even have the ordinary things people have in life. Okay? And... That's what it's talking about here in Colossians 2. And these are the doctors of men, ascetic practices, humility, severe treatment of the body. That kind of self-defines it. Are not of any value in curbing self, self-indulgence. That's the thing that becomes clear after time goes by. It didn't do one thing. This is, oh, I just closed my Bible. Colossians 2, 20, 21, 22, 23. Colossians 2. I'm hoping to teach that sometime again. So there is your self-chosen worship is the, is the term there. Now, this is very attractive to people nowadays. You might wonder why it would even be attractive. But people have this built-in guilt, this built-in desire to be holy Sometimes they don't think that it can happen for them so that they hire somebody else to be that for them. You have a priest or a prelate or a holy man 
a shaman or somebody else, and you just go about ordinary life, but you can say, hey, I belong to this church over here, and they have a holy man. I can feel good about that. Now, the true doctrine of holiness is that there's no sphere of life that's outside of God's dominion. Holiness is grounded in the very nature of God himself. The passage here, be holy because I'm holy, is Leviticus 19 and verse 2. I was once asked to teach through the book of Leviticus in one session. Well, I did a lot of study. You need to know something even better if you're going to do it quickly. And what I found was that the holiness is, was something that they just, they lived there in the midst with the Holy God in their midst, and they were conscious of it. People actually died. They'd go and uh, like the thing with Phineas, with the spear thrust through the fornicators. They actually died because God was holy, and the fire would be burning them up. And so they kept the law. So we are, as Christians, to have holy behavior. So holiness is characterized the day-by-day conduct of Christian believers, always and everywhere. Yes, and we can't change that, we don't want to change it, we don't want to compromise it. But how does it happen? And I can tell you that it doesn't happen because we make you sign a document saying you won't dance. Now, why did they even do that, the, the holiness, the, the who, some who claim perfection? Because you could point to this and say, I don't do any of these things on this list. And I know I don't, and neither does anybody else that I know. And therefore, I'm holy. And you could claim perfection. Now, it got a little more sophisticated for me, because after I was at this Pentecostal church and then in the Bible college, which, by the way, the professors, especially the one that influenced me the most, didn't believe that. He's the one that told me to study Colossians 2 because he could see I was attracted to it. The, uh, Reverend Wesley Smith, my favorite teacher, he tried to help me. And uh, technically, the Assemblies of God, their distinctive was speaking in tongues and that the second blessing was power for witnessing. They weren't technically a holiness church in the same regard like the Church of the Nazarene and some of the other Pentecostal holiness and so on. But they had the same list of rules. Now, Eric, didn't you tell me that they had that same list at Northwestern? Yep, I had to sign a list. Uh... Yeah, Eric, yeah. Yeah, I had to sign uh, an agreement that I wouldn't play cards or dance. And if anybody's ever seen me dance, that probably was a blessing. <laughs> you gladly volunteered. <laughs> yeah, that's right. that's well, they, they actually had that still at Bethel Sem, and it was so archaic. And there were some of the students that had grown up in the Baptist General Council were offended by the list. You know, and I was in my 40s when I, and I said, I don't guess. But whatever the case, we definitely need God's help and we need our behavior to change. Would you agree with that? And how I treat people around me, what kind of attitudes I have, uh, how I comport myself when I'm driving the car and I'm all alone. That's a tough one, isn't it? It can change. I remember we were talking about this in Sunday school. We were studying Hebrews and I made a, I thought, why don't we try to do this? And me and one other person agreed that we're going to go two weeks without getting angry in the car. And that we were going to be patient and we're going to just let the traffic do what the traffic does. Amazingly, I'm not claiming I was anything great. I had problems in my life, as you know. It actually worked. I, was, I had two weeks where I was so happy driving. I decided just to keep doing it. <laughs> I'd have to say it's kind of degenerated since then on occasion. <laughs> Holiness is, uh, is reverent. It's grounded in the holiness of God, and it wants uh, it causes us to want to be like the Lord and, and treat each other the way God wants us to. And I promised you some Luther, but let's look at a passage, and I'm going to maybe back up again. Peter says what he does in 1 Peter 1 first, but then later 
you see that this is grounded in the fact in chapter 2 that as a whole, Christians are a holy people. And we have the priesthood of every believer. I wanted you to see this before I start quoting Luther. But 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possessions, that you may possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. So this holy nation here includes everyone. Not just the ones who signed the document swearing there's certain things they won't do. But the entire group, because of their redemption and the cleansing of the blood of Jesus, to cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God, we're a priesthood and a nation. Luther made a lot of discussion about this, and it was central to his theology. The priesthood of every believer. And that's revolutionary. Why? Because there's not some holy man somewhere on a mountain mediating between us and God. We all can come to the throne of grace, as we were seeing last week. We all can find grace and mercy to help in time of need because Jesus, our intercessor and high priest, is ascended bodily to heaven and sits at the right hand of God and ever lives to make intercession for us. And it was made a, a way through his body that we can come directly to the throne without mediation, without a human mediator. And each of us, so there's your accessibility through prayer, find grace and mercy, which we're always needing. Now it says you've received mercy. Now I promised you some Luther. Here's what Luther says about the gospel. By the way, I'm, I'll be quoting from several sources of Luther. I have his complete works. But he says this, quote, Through the gospel, we are told who Christ is, in order that we may learn to know that he is our Savior, that he delivers us from sin and death and helps us out of all misfortune, reconciles us to the Father and makes us pious and saves us without our works. Now, that sounds pretty basic, but Luther just went over and over and over that. And he felt that that's something that the people needed to hear weekly, if not daily. That God is our Savior and forgives our sins and makes us pious. That's what God does. Now he talks about this phrase in Peter about being obedient children. I think it probably says in the Greek, I don't have in front of me, children of obedience. Hebraic expression means characterized by. Christians are people characterized by obedience. It's true. He says this, in that way, well, first of all, he wants to say what it is not. For since they see clearly that obedience is greatly praised in Scripture, talking about the Catholic prelates, they have appropriated this in order to blind the people and to give the impression that obedience of which the scripture speaks is their affair. Let me tell you, by the way, anytime you want to say something, the mic is right there. What he is talking about are the monastic orders that required an oath of obedience. Okay, you take an oath of obedience. My first book, I have a whole chapter on this. And the reason I put a chapter in there is that Rick Warren filled a stadium of people that took this big, long oath. This sounds pious, but it's wicked because we're told not to swear at all, okay? 
And so I wrote that, and he gave her permission to decide it in its entirety, so I did, and rebuked it using Luther and his writings against monastic vows. Now, being half a person who has to defend what I wrote, I was on radio, and they were just tearing into me. Well, what's wrong with this? What's wrong with this? How dare you say this is bad? And my response was, where have you been getting teaching that you don't see what's wrong with it? Your average evangelical has no clue what's wrong with this. And because it's just par for the course, swear to everything under the sun and maybe you'll get moving. Luther rightly understood that all you were swearing to was your own condemnation and guilt. And I cited one phrase out of that big long oath. By the way, when they took that oath, it was in order to swear allegiance to the peace plan. You ever heard of that lately? What's the latest thing? Somebody here told me earlier, yeah, 40 days of getting rid of your fat or whatever. It just keeps shifting. Make them, make them commit to something. Commit to this. Well, it didn't work. Commit to this. Well, that didn't work. Commit to this. Now, that didn't work. We're always swearing to something and making commitment to something, thinking it'll keep us going. And when it fails, they give you the next one. And I saw that. This is just religious vows. One of the things 25,000 people in Angel Stadium swore to simultaneously was that they would not be frustrated by problems. Okay. So I quoted this guy out in New York who was doing a radio interview. So why would you swear to that? You shall be a covenant breaker. Do you think it's a small thing to take an oath before God to not be frustrated by problems? Because you decide, to start with, it's presumptuous, right? And it's, in, it's presumptuousness of sin. And then you are frustrated. Now you're full of guilt and failure. Can we swear whatever we want to to God and then fail it and, and think there's no emotional or spiritual consequences? We're just swearing to our own failure and our own guilt. And the guy on the... the out there said, oh, he had never thought of that. See, evangelicalism in America since about 1870 is a pietistic religion. It believes that higher order Christians, holiness experiences, better this, better that, this has consequences. Our daughter was in a youth group with a pietistic leader who is teaching that if you can't be totally sold off for Jesus beyond anybody else or anything else, you might as well not be a Christian at all. God's going to spew you out of his mouth. That tormented her for years because she gave up. We used to send our young people to teen missions. They had to go to teen missions. Why? Because American Christians are no good. They're tainted. They're worthless. But overseas, they're a lot better Christians. No, it was just the opposite. Harmed our daughter. God bless her. She's down here now probably. I don't know if she's here today, but she's working on the music. God bless her. It took years to get that stuff out to realize there's by grace through faith. It's not a sin to be an American. I heard a pietist preacher doing this thing that was going all around and uh, don't even go overseas if you're American. You're so tainted, you're going to ruin everybody else. And I remember a radio host, local, one called, sent me that link and called me to talk about it. I said, this is wicked. You're telling me that it's hopeless for me if I'm an American. God will never be happy with me. I can never have a ministry. And I might as well just be consigned to be a wicked, evil person with no hope. Because I'm an American. What kind of teaching is that? I want to guard the gospel. Somebody's got to care about these, the flock that are getting browbeat by these people who think they're better Christians because they've been on the mission field. Mike, over a year, first, after you're done, bring, bring it over to Peter. Okay, I was going to say you're so destined to failure 
by swearing to God for anything or taking an oath like you were saying, that I believe in Hebrews when we went through that, only God swore in his own name. Yeah, because there's nobody else to swear by. To swear by, right. Yeah. Peter, think about what you're going to say, and I want to quote some Luther, and then we'll get back to you. I didn't finish my quote of Luther. I kind of went off on green with him. Here's what Luther says then. What does it mean to be an obedient children? To be obedient children. Quote Luther, definition here. He who hears the gospel and God's word and believes in it is an obedient child of God. Period. Wow, isn't that different? Now, is there any scriptural basis for that? John 6. What, what verse? John 6, 29. The work of God is to believe in him whom the Father has sent. Wow. No, it's better to just spend the rest of your life feeling guilty and then have the religious leaders squeeze money and work out of you to try to get rid of a little bit of it. Okay, Peter. Is that what you refer to as indulgences? Indulgences were (laughs) using money to try to lessen the problems you had with God. Okay, you were guilty, purgatory, sin didn't want to go away. Money would help that if you gave it to the Catholic Church to build the Cathedral of St. Peter. So doubling back to what you talked about, what you're basically saying is, uh, these vows could never be kept, but going way back into even Catholic tradition, those were the monastic vows? Yes. And those were vows of what? Vows um, of chastity, vows of obedience, and vows of poverty were the three biggies. So now we have now a new pope, and what's his calling card? To be a pope for the little guy. Right? And to, to not have the pomp and circumstance, but just to wear ordinary clothes, or they're not exactly ordinary, but he got rid of the red shoes. <laughs> and he goes and mingles with the little guy. Okay, but see, that has, that's grounded in monastic orders, too, depending which one. And that is that you're taking a vow of poverty. Poverty would mean that you don't have any gain financial gain whatsoever, you're living in this monastery. Obedience means whatever the people above you said you do without question. And chastity means that you never get married. Now, one of the perversities of Rome was forbidding marriage and considering marriage to be a lesser thing than they're taking their vow of chastity. But the hypocrisy that attends that is just startling. It takes your breath away. For example, a priest who's supposed to be having a vow of chastity may commit adultery or fornication, go to counseling, come back and be a priest. But if he gets married, he just he's booted out and he can never come back. Okay, so it's a sin to get married, but not a sin to have. It's a sin to have a prostitute, but you can get over that. But if you get married, that's it. You're done. You broke your vow. You're out. So look at what, what does that say? That's an affront to the Holy Spirit who inspired the book of Ephesians about Christ and the church. And so when you have human lawgivers, you get bizarre outcomes. Now, a little more Luther, just so I don't break my vow. No, I didn't make a vow. I just... <laughs> Let my yes be yes. I told you I'd share more Luther. Here are some more definitions. And when I do this, I call, I print these things out of my software and then go in here and mark them up for what I want to share with you. Here's one from Luther. Therefore, we are all holy if we walk in faith. That's what Luther said. We're all holy if we walk in faith. Continuing Luther. For he who is a Christian, enters with the Lord Christ into a sharing of all his goods. Since Christ is holy, he too must be holy 
or he must deny that Christ is holy. If you, um, the little word holy designates that which is God's own and is due to him alone. Then you are holy as he is holy. Quoting Luther again. So far the apostle has described the grace that is offered to us through the gospel and the preaching about Jesus Christ. And he has taught us what our attitude toward this should be, namely, that we should hold to a pure and unchanged meaning of faith in such a way that we know that no work we are able to do or devise can be of any help to us. So when I signed the document that I wouldn't dance or play cards, I didn't do any good. Back to quoting Luther. Now when this is preached, reason, which he usually set off as a, the sophist opposing the gospel, comes along, reason comes along and says, ah, if this is true, then I need not do a single good work. Remember Paul? Continue in sin, the grace will rebound. Quoting Luther again, Thus stupid minds seize upon this and change Christian life into carnal liberty. We'll get the, yes, over to Norm here. We'll get that when we get into Galatians 5. We're called to liberty, but we shouldn't make liberty an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. What's the law of Christ? (laughs) I'm sorry, it's not fair to you. No, you had something else to say. The law of Christ is to bear one another's burdens. It's very much like the law in the Old Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Norm, ask, make your comment or whatever. Yeah, this idea of, uh, of being holy, the thing that uh, I keep thinking about, to be holy uh, is something that's set apart for a special yeah, purpose. Yeah, exactly. So... When a person becomes a Christian, you're, you're set apart, you're called, you're different. But, but even things that are not people can be holy. They had holy vessels, they had holy things because they're set apart. In the so, Old Testament, So yeah. it seems like to call someone trying to be holy, it's not so much about what they do as who they are. I mean, That's what Luther there, says. There's other words that describe our actions like godliness and righteousness uh-huh. that have more to do with conduct than calling something a person holy. That- yeah, we're holy. We're all holy according to this, right? Yeah. We're a holy people. But there are occasions. Isn't there something in Thessalonians about possessing your vessel in purity? And linking into holiness. Anybody finds that, they get uh, free coffee. <laughs> I know it's in there. Let's talk about it this way. It's, I stepped on my own mic cable. It's not disconnected from behavior, but the behavior is grounded in the reality of holiness and the forgiveness of sins in the gospel. When you disconnect them and just preach the behavior, you're going to pound people and make them full of guilt. And also, they become vulnerable to abusive religious leaders. You can pound on people and make them give money and everything else under the sun to try to feel better. Eric, Barb Gretsch would like the mic. No, that's okay. Then you get the free coffee. <laughs> Hope you like coffee. I'm on it. Go ahead and read the verse. Be how you found it. Um, it's First Thessalonians four three, and I'd say through six. Okay, go ahead. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we've already told you and warned you. Uh, for God did not call us to be pure, but to live a holy life. There, there. Okay, so there is a behavioral aspect, as Peter said, be holy in all of your behavior. Okay, but the reason has to do, remember, defraud, harming your brother? 
bringing shame and reproach, I believe, to the gospel. I believe that means of grace that equalizes us, the holiness that is us being a holy nation, a royal priesthood, is the ground of any kind of behavior. Okay? And that it's true that as we come in faith to uh, participate in the means of grace, God is objectively changing us. We're not the same people we were. I totally believe that. I believe that's true, and it informs that Eric believes that, and we talk about it on the radio. It lies behind how we teach, how we preach, and how we look at the body of Christ and how we treat the body of Christ. As a holy people, precious to God, to be treated accordingly. Pounding on people to get them to give more money or to do more things for the church is abhorrent to me. Absolutely abhorrent. Giving people what Luther was talking about, the truth of the gospel and the assurance of the forgiveness of sins will leave the rest in God's hands. And God's hands are very capable. He changes people. More Luther. i got about four minutes here. By the way, for those who like attribution, I'm quoting today, all my quotes are either from Luther's Works, Volume 30, or Luther's Works, Volume 21. Here is some more Luther. Sophists. When he talks about the sophists, he's talking about the teaching philosophers of the Roman Catholic Church. Okay? Here are sophists, says Luther, have spun out many dreams about perfection and have applied them to all their orders and classes. Notice that? Orders and classes. As if only priests and monks were in a state of perfection, the one higher than the other, the bishops higher than all the others, and the Pope the highest of all. But this means the word perfection becomes completely inapplicable to the ordinary Christian way of life. Listen to this. He's commenting on Matthew where it says, be perfect as I'm perfect. So you have the religious orders, the monks, the bishops, the Pope. They're all more perfect, quote-unquote, than the ones below them. The ordinary rabble, the Christians have no role but to go around and serve these other people who have perfection. It's abusive. That's why Luther taught the priesthood of every believer, as Peter taught. Okay, it comes completely inapplicable to ordinary Christian way of life, as if such people could not be called perfect or be perfect. But, says Luther, you hear Christ talking here not to bishops, monks and nuns, but in general to all Christians who are his pupils, who want to be called the sons of God, who do not want to be like the publicans and criminals as are the Pharisees and our clergy. This is given to all Christians. Be perfect as I am perfect. Be holy as I am holy. It's not given to the religious elite. It's not given to some people like Oswald Chambers who achieve perfection through total surrender. Now the stuff makes sense that he was in all this mysticism that's just a bunch of gobbledygook until you see where he's coming from. He's achieved perfection. Most of us can never get there. Why do we put ourselves under this abuse and read this garbage? And then when I criticize it, some of my friends go ballistic on me. How dare you question the great, holy Oswald Chambers? Because he was a false teacher. Get used to it. (laughs) Here, uh, again, Luther. Listen to Luther. We cannot be or become perfect in the sense that we do not have any sin the way they dream about perfection. Here and everywhere in Scripture, to be perfect, listen to Luther, to be perfect means in the first place, the doctrine be completely correct and perfect, and then that life move and be regulated according to it. Oh, 
Interesting what he says about that. What are we told by pietistic evangelicalism? People that are concerned about doctrine are there's something wrong with. We don't need doctrine. Have you ever heard that? Yes. It's a dirty word, doctrine. So it doesn't matter what we believe as long as we have a mystical experience. Or we get to some higher plane. Or we're not like the ordinary mundane Christians going around. What if we took all those claims away and all we had left was the gospel? Take away the higher order, the vows, the peace plan, the 40 days of losing weight. All of these things that evangelicals pile up upon the church to make us world-class Christians. We can't be ordinary. That's the worst thing in the world. What we're left is the gospel, the imputed righteousness of Christ, being a royal priesthood, having access to the throne of grace, being a holy nation, being filled with the spirit and love for one another bearing one another's burdens and thus fulfilling the law of Christ. Why is that so inadequate and why is Oswald Chambers better? You know, I question all of that. And Colossians 2 corrects it. I just throw it out the window. We have no clue who we should compare one to the other and so forth. Every single son and daughter of God is bought by the blood of Jesus, is precious, is loved, is included, and we have accessibility. We have the priesthood of every believer. And there's not one thing that we can put on you that's going to make you a perfect Christian. Luther was so good. Here's what some of the just a little blips from Luther. Treating everyone alike, says Luther, and excluding no one. That is within the body of Christ. Not that we are following the ecumenism. Dear ones, this is all precious to me, and I think it is to you too. And it really takes away a lot of the problems, the burdens, or whatever. And the result isn't licentiousness and wickedness and boiling over into every sin. Never does grace cause that. We may very well fall into sin, but the great thing about the body of Christ is we have help getting back out the, the church, even if it means church discipline. God will get us back out. Yes, uh, Luann. I know we're going a little long here. What's this thing say? I just wanted oh. to say real quick, I thought it was interesting, but Paul three times in Corinthians, once was in 612, he says everything is permissible. And he says, not all is helpful. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, he says, everything is permissible. Not everything is helpful or builds up. So it's kind of giving us, we have to discern, you know. I mean, it's kind of not the, um, you can't go on sinning because you're a Christian, nor do you have to be bound by these things. Yeah. We have to. The great thing about this is that we can go on and have diversity and not, a, not have it be an offense to people. The fact that it's different. We don't have to have a set of rules to make us all monolithic. But then, which was what we had when I first became Christian in that church that I joined. Yes, every faithful member did not go to the movie theater. But it didn't make us all loving, kind, forgiving all of these inner qualities that God would want to see Christians and bearing one another burden. That, that wasn't there, but in some cases there were some nasty, bitter people that you wonder, where, where's grace? And anyhow, I think, I think and retroactively Luther for writing these things down, we have the gospel. We have the grace of God and we have one another. And that's what it's all about. And I thank God that I get to participate with a group that are blood-bought sons and daughters of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for providing the truth of the gospel and the priesthood of every believer and the fact that we're a holy nation before you. 
help us to live that out in practical ways that would adorn the gospel with works of faith and obedience that would be honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.